You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Tuesday, July the 5th, coming to you not from TW11, but rather uh, in a car on my way down the M11 back to London, having been in Newmarket, uh, talking to the BHA Development Programme students, all of whom have a fine future in this sport. And as I was doing so, it emerged that Frankie Dottori was back on Emily Upjohn uh, this morning for John Gosden and would ride her in the Irish Oaks. That was uh, broken by Emma Berry from the TDN First Thing. The question was, would he then ride in Spiral on Friday? Were they back together was this sabbatical uh, over almost before it had begun. So uh, immediately after I'd, I'd finished uh, my talk, I got on the phone to John Gosden, and this is, is what he had to say. Yes, uh, obviously my concern had been that um, what I referred to as the distractions were somewhat uh, becoming too great, and, uh, and I was quite clear that I did not want a part-time jockey and uh you know you you right a jockey's life is a tough one i mean they're riding work in the morning they're traveling they're keeping the fighting to keep the weight down they have to be incredibly fit sharp focused it's it's uh no one would sort of think it's an easy life it's not it's a pretty tough one and uh i've been very careful with frankie um Obviously, in the uh, 90s, when he was with me, he went everywhere, champion jockey, 230 winners a season. And I've obviously, when he, you know, the second saving of the career, if you like, in 2015, we have been measured about where he goes and what he rides. But it was getting a little bit uh, ridiculous in the sense that he was taking much too much pride on how few rides he had in a season, <laughs> which, you know, can prove to be counterproductive. And um, it slightly culminated at Ascot, as we know. Uh, he and I have had uh, two meetings since, and uh, since then, and come to a full understanding of uh, what we want to do together. And uh, I've been pleased with his response in going out, getting rides. Whether it's Germany, whether it's uh, in 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 New York, whether you know, and that's what I want to see more of. I do not want to see him chasing up and down the country, not in the slightest. I just want to see uh, more focus, because you, we know the requirements of race riding uh, are not something that you can just do half-hearted. Mm. I pointed out this morning that uh, Rafa Nadal is known for practicing the hardest and the most in the mornings, and. Uh, you know, it speaks for itself. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, being a jockey is, is a demanding, it needs courage, it needs enormous skill, and it needs real sharpness and focus. And uh, that's what it's about. And we are perfectly aware that Frankie is the other side of 50. So um, I just needed to have, uh, make that point to him. And uh, he has not been, he's never been an easy person to manage. As I think others have found down the years, but we have a very good, close relationship. And so um, hopefully we can get right back on track together now. 
I think it, I think um, just looking at it from you know, semi distance, people will totally understand that if you've been in what's basically a sort of professional marriage for a long time, you, you occasionally there's going to be tensions and tempers are going to get frayed, and you, for want of a better phrase, you're going to get um, pissed off with each other. Was there a, a point in the last couple of weeks where you thought, do you know what? I even though I was fully prepared to, to, to end this, I actually don't really want to end it like this because A, we've had such a good history and B, we, we basically get on with it. We end anything, no, and we were both very clear about that. But I was also under no illusion about, the, you know, the sort of unnecessary mistakes being made. Um, I don't think running around the boxes... Uh, in top hat and tails before racing at Ascot and trying to tip people through the card for a, for a few pounds on the side. I don't think that's the professional approach. Do that when you're retired, but not when you're race riding. And I don't, I don't, that the kind of thing doesn't amuse me. We're going to be focusing on the horses and the races. And, uh, look, he is a great jockey, but he, as I say, he can be easily distracted. And that's what was beginning to frustrate me. And, and I think at a certain, you know, stage of your career and the latter part of his career, you, you've got to be careful. You've got to stay on top of the game because there are a lot of young ones out there, <laughs> you know, be trying to take, take your position or trying to in a race, let alone in anything else. Um, do you think, I mean, do you think now, because you've had a lot of experience, do you think you'd you'd be a bit more forthright in expressing yourself than you would have been, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago? No, because... Uh, I've always had a very close relationship with jockeys and all those that ride for me, whether it's William Buick or anybody down the years, will know that. And I understand what they're up against. It's probably due because in America, I travel a lot of the time with the jockeys. Mm. We're a bit of a traveling circus and there was some array of amazing jockeys in America. We take night flights, we'd be racing, get back, fly back to Los Angeles, but the Sunday racing having come out of Belmont Park on the, on the, on the night flight back. I mean, you know, we were, we were doing a lot of traveling and you get to learn all of the issues they have to deal with. And a lot of this they're doing on a minimalistic diet. And Lafitte Pinquet was a master of self-discipline. And, I've always been close to jockeys in that probably and fully understand and quick to understand if things go wrong in a race, that's life, just as it did in the eclipse on Saturday. But what I don't need and don't appreciate is someone who's not putting in 100% commitment. That is the problem. And, uh, you know, Frankie's a famous person. He can go and do a lot of other things. But uh, the horses, uh, my job as a trainer, my principal job is to the horses in my care. Uh, to the owners of those horses and to our staff here. And those three things come ahead of anything else. As uh, Alec Head always said to me once, never lose, uh, never lose an owner over a jockey. I remember his advice. Are you, are you back in business as regards the big horses? Then he rode Emily up, John, uh, this morning, and you, you said to, to Emma from the TDN, Emma Berry from the TDN, he'd, he'd ride her in the, in the Irish Oaks. I mean, are we to take it as read now that he's, he's on in spiral on Friday? Oh, yes, I think we can, you know, we are going forward now. I'm sorry, in a sense, that it has to be what I called a little bit of a, a public dis a disagreement that spilled in the public. But there comes a stage with, you know, you have to get someone's attention. And he is uh, he's hugely talented, as we know. As I said, he's the most superb international jockey probably has ever been and maybe will ever be. Uh, but at the same time, you do have to get people's attention sometimes. And... Uh, it has been unfortunately necessary and hopefully it's behind us and we can carry on. But uh, 
you know, there were certain aspects of things probably, you know, the Britannia didn't amuse me at all, sort of, you know, noted by uh, Luke Harvey down the start, the demeanour of the jockey and that kind of thing is not on. We're meant to be professionals, you know, so which he is, and he's a great rider and a great friend, but... Uh, it's uh, not a storm on a teacup, but it's something that needed sorting, and we go forward now. Do you feel relieved? Yeah, no one likes this kind of thing. I mean, I, I, I really don't, but you prefer to settle these things behind closed doors, but uh, this wasn't exactly proving possible. Did Emily Upjohn work well this morning? Yeah, very pleased with her, thanks, yeah. She hasn't done a great deal since the Oaks, obviously, but pleased with her, and... Uh, we look forward and, uh, to, you know, we're not even halfway through the season yet. John, I appreciate your time this morning. All right, my friend. Bye. Well, a Frank John Gosden there on the extraordinary events, really, of the last two weeks, uh, much of which has taken me by surprise, Dave Yates from the Daily Mirror, not least of which this, what might be final chapter, or for the time being anyway. The key news is tutorial ride in Spiral in the Falmouth. He'll ride Emily up, John, in the Irish Oaks. And yes, we're going forward, said Gosden. What's your reaction? Yeah, yeah, I must say that, uh, Nick, over the last 30 years, I've covered hundreds of different horse racing stories, and I don't think a single one has uh, confused me at different times more than this one. Um, it looked, didn't it, a week last Saturday that the word sabbatical meant the sort of sabbatical. There, there are two types of sabbatical. There's the Greg Wood sabbatical that I mentioned on the NLD last week, Greg Wood, friend and colleague from The Guardian, every five years under The Guardian contract, uh, a journalist and employees get uh, a month's sabbatical. And there's the other type of sabbatical when one says, uh, yes, Sandra and I are having a bit of a sabbatical at the moment. And by that, you mean get your record collection out of there. One of your mates has told you that he's seen her down uh, in the, the pub by the river with another bloke. And it's, uh, it's, it's time to, um, to gird your loins for a permanent split. I think many of us thought that that was uh, the case, the latter sabbatical. John Gosden is a Cambridge graduate. He's a very erudite man. Uh, he knows the meaning of words. He used the word sabbatical to begin with, and he stressed last Saturday at Sandown Park that he knew the meaning of the word sabbatical. And it, that has come to pass, hasn't it? And it's come to pass quite quickly. As you say, the um, Dottori was aboard Emily Upjohn this morning uh, as she worked on the July course. And as we see from the interview, Inspiral will be ridden by Frankie in the Foul Mistakes on Friday. And this is now the point from which they go forward. I, I, I'm, one thing that does, one of the many things that surprised me was that it needed such a, a, a public aspect uh, to this, the way that it was played out, rather than a word in the shell. Like, you know, I, I like to think that, for example, if, if you and I, if, if, if you felt that I wasn't contributing properly to the Nick Luck Daily, that I was, uh, that I was perhaps uh, worse for wear in the morning or something, for over a, a, a series of podcasts, you might say to me, Yatesy, we need to have a word. You know, your, your work seems a bit different. You don't seem to be quite as committed as you were. Out, uh, that all my shifts had been taken by uh, other Nick Luck Daily contributors. So I'm surprised that there wasn't a word in the shell-like in that sense, uh, rather than what we had last uh, week, last Saturday, which of course was the, the three Gosden rides on uh, the uh, 
the is it the Criterion Stakes, the Fred Archer Stakes yeah. card on the July course that had gone to Rab Havlin and to James Doyle. But um, yeah, it's well, it's uh, it's good news. I think I think one thing poss possibly that John Gosden might not have appreciated, uh, even though you know he's a multiple champion trainer, multiple Group One winner, as we know on or grade one winner on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, one thing that I think perhaps he might not have appreciated was that when you get horses like this, the, the top jockeys, you can get them now and again. You might get a, a, a James Doyle or a Will Buick or a Holly Doyle or a Ryan Moore or a Tom Marquand. But of course, because of their commitments, you can't get them consistently and all the time. So that situation of using the best available, as trainers often say, is in this sense, an unsatisfactory one because you don't have that consistency. Dottori brings that consistency. He brings that expertise and that skill, that pizzazz and that panache. And as long as his mind focused on the job, and Gosden said in that interview that the, the, the things that didn't impress him, that he feels that now they've been corrected. And as long as you've got the Dottori that you want, He's a mighty fine jockey to have on your horses and on a consistent basis. And Frankie Dottori has kept his counsel, which has served him clearly quite well in this instance. And he knows also that he, however, however much pride he's had to swallow, he's not the kind of guy that wants to be turning up to Inspiral's foul mistakes, riding a 40 to 1 outsider against her. Well, that's the other thing that's worth that, that we need to discuss. And that is what has... Dottori had to give to this. Now, it was, he mentioned in that interview, John Gosden, I remember that very well. I was at the PA, I think, at the time when uh, Frankie said he was cutting down on his rise. And I remember the quote from John Gosden, which was, the penny has finally dropped, i.e. that he'd been telling him for some time, you've got to cut back on your riding commitments. In those days, it wasn't seven meetings a week. It, it, was, it was nine or, or possibly not even a limit on it. So, Gosden told Dottori, you don't want to be herring round, uh, riding left, right and centre here, there and everywhere if you want longevity to your career. Now, what he said is, I, I, don't, I don't want him riding everywhere, but I, do want, I don't want him to make a virtue out of having so few rides. The business with the boxes at Royal Ascot, I must admit, I didn't know about, and I could understand why the trainer might not be impressed uh, with that. So what, do, what has Dottori had to give? Gosden has said to him, look, I just want a bit more from you. I want you to be around perhaps in the mornings the week before Royal Ascot. I want you perhaps to be around in the mornings more consistently. I don't want you to, to match Luke Morris for rides uh, during the flat season, but I want you to keep yourself fit and ticking over. Um, and and I, I basically want you to do enough so that you are at your best. And Dottori has obviously thought about that and thought, right, well, I'm merely going back to where I was a few months ago in terms of commitment if you like for want of a better word and he's obviously happy that they're meeting in the middle they're both making something of a concession and that's how the rapprochement has come about all right time to catch up on what's happening in the united states now with pat cummings uh, director of the thoroughbred idea foundation pat let's start with what's happening on the track and the return of life is good after what was a a rather listless effort in in Dubai. That was 
quite a good comeback. What did you what did you make of the the strength of it, and what does it tell us about what what he's likely to be doing for the rest of the year? Do you think? Certainly, uh, a very strong performance in the Grade Two. John Nayrud at Belmont on Saturday wins by five lengths, goes to the front, never looks back. The thing that I think may have caught some a little by surprise is that Speaker's Corner came back in that race, having run uh, behind Flightline previously. Um, you know, and, and you know, Flightline having been so majestic in his Met Mile win on Belmont Stakes Day. So life is good certainly seems back, and the Windstar Farm Todd Pletcher connection seem to be wanting to point him back to a return to the Breeders' Cup dirt mile and then another tilt at the Pegasus in January. But certainly a lot of racing to go between now and then. And the question is, will he meet some of the other up-and-comers and emerging stars and maybe some three-year-olds that want to face the elders later in the year? That's still to be seen. So you're talking about horses like Flightline, like Jack Christopher, uh, and like potentially the winner of the Stephen Foster Stakes, Olympiad, who's coming up on the blind side. Do you do you rate Olympiad as a potentially top-class horse or not? Absolutely, Nick. You know, I, there were arguments that could be made that this son of Spitestown could have been getting away with some, uh, perhaps some some soft leads and some easy paces in his races, but he's rolled off a string of wins now. Um, in graded company and a two, just more than two length win in the Stephen Foster on Saturday at Churchill that featured, uh, you know, certainly some decent competition, which included the return of Mandaloon to American Shores. He only ran fourth. You had a, a horse in, by the name of Cato River who had been coming in off of a, a win streak in some lesser races, but uh, Olympiad ran forward and ran fast and kept going and kicked away from them. And so the, the the talk right now is potentially a showdown in the Whitney at Saratoga uh, coming up in August, where we would see potentially Olympiad, potentially life is good meeting there. And certainly is the, uh, is the up and comer and uh, he's going to need to prove it in grade one company where he has not yet been. So um, the older horse division suddenly looking pretty intriguing. Uh, but the three-year-olds are, are looking interesting in their own way. We talked about Jack Christopher, who's pointing to the Haskell. What did you make of Charge It winning the one-mile Dwyer at Belmont Park on on Saturday? Now, I know he was three to five, and he was entitled to win, having not really stayed in the Kentucky Derby and not really run any sort of a race. But 23 lengths for Pletcher? Yeah, um, I'd say a, a pretty remarkable effort. You know, Chad Brown had a horse in this race that was pretty well regarded for uh, for his top owner, Peter Brandt, and, and went off a two-to-one to Bakov. He was coming in off of a, a, a pretty decent win and was very well regarded to be two-to-one against a three-to-five charge it. But uh, Nabokov did not run a step in this race and was eased a long way. Charge it crushed the rest of the field in a, in a fashion that, you know, even people people talk about dirt races and large margins. Uh, th- we don't see things like this. Twenty three lengths over a mile, stop the clock in one thirty four and change. It was a very impressive effort from this son of Tappet, who was really uh, coming into the Kentucky Derby. He was very undercooked, um, had only made a handful of career starts, and it was thought that the Derby might be a, a bridge too far for him. But but he certainly looks to be progressing well and. Uh, no worse for his Derby 17th place finish. 
he came back in a big way, and and that should light up the uh, the later three year old stakes like the Haskell, the Travers. Um, there's a lot to look forward to for this son of Tappet. All right, other big news this week. Well, the biggest news this week should be that Heisa, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, is now is now official as of July first. Would you notice the difference if you were going to the races from one day to the next? I would say a little bit. Um, for the most part, racing continued as normal. Um, one thing that uh, is is in the way and, and, and is certainly is noticeable is the uh, persuading rules. The crop can only be used uh, no more than six times. If you go over that limit by up to three strikes, um, the jockey will face uh, some sort of penalty. But if you go beyond that, four strikes over and beyond, the owner can lose the purse of the race. So this is undoubtedly the most formal crop rule that has been put in place nationwide. We're talking about federal authority, federal oversight that has never occurred in the history of American racing. Uh, it is now um, uniform for those who are recognizing it and adopting it. There are still active lawsuits against it. Um, the, still you know, plenty of jurisprudence uh, to go on between now and some point in the future. The one state that has um, refused to recognize the authority is Texas. And as a result, in order to be compliant with the law, Nick, um, Texas, Lone Star Park, a track formerly a host of the Breeders' Cup, uh, is not distributing its races for interstate wagering. And that is a really big step. And what we saw last uh, week when this happened on Saturday was the first real day of coverage of the, the new federal authority. Wagering on Lone Star's races was limited essentially to those who were at the race course, and total wagering turnover fell by uh, roughly 90% how long that will be able to go on is a whole different story but there are plenty of fights and it's more than just about racing it's about federal government involvement in what is up to this point purely been pretty much state issues and uh, at the end of the day these are the united states and uh, they they still uh, operate state to state in in certain rules and, and ways and some of those rules are are interference rules. It's been a hot topic over here. I know you've been listening with interest to the podcast. We've been talking about whether a dangerous riding offence should be more more commonplace, i.e., that you know incidents of of, of bad riding should be categorised as dangerous rather than simply careless, and therefore trigger a, a disqualification. We were talking about the Riddler's uh, Norfolk Stakes victory, which comes up for appeal this week, and I know that that struck some fear into you as someone who's been trying to harmonize rules to, to, to category one over the, over the world. Yeah. So, so the vast majority of the rest of the developed racing world is operated under the, the category one standard um, that is in place in Britain and France migrated to it a few years ago as did Germany, Japan, a few years before that the United States and Canada have pretty much been the, the only holdouts to that. And, this coming September, the first U.S. state is moving to Category 1 interference rules. That is the state of Oklahoma. And very interestingly, in their rules, they put in the dangerous riding principle. Uh, and I think the language is very similar to that, which is in place um, through the BHA rules. Um, and, and I think it's very keen to note that if, if Britain, if there were a movement to maybe revert to horses losing races in a more liberal fashion, like happens here in America quite frequently, the the amount of really unjust 
disqualifications or demotions um, would would turn people off to that, um, you know, faster than you could say boo. Uh, it is uh, remarkable the degree to which American um, stewards throw horses out, um, or at least demote them from from wins. And and category two rules bring with it far more unjust circumstances. So I think the focus, you know, continues to need to be on uh, proper penalties and deterrence for jockeys. And I think as, as various commentators have noted, if, if something like what happened uh, with the Riddler happened in Australia, happened in Hong Kong, the penalty is weeks, not days. And you know, there, there clearly remains a lack of harmony in those sorts of, of things and penalties worldwide. And I think it really stood out in that incident, incident, and particularly when compared to what happened at Sandown uh, last weekend with uh, with Christoph Sumian. Pat, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Nick. Well, at a cost of just over £35,000, the Commonwealth Cup runner-up Flaming Rib has been added to the July Cup field. He will run in the colours of Michael Owen and Associates. And Michael joins me now. Michael, that run in the Commonwealth Cup... Um, your first reaction to it immediately after the race? Well, Nick, when you come second, you always think, what if, don't you? <laughs> so the first thing is, uh, I suppose, pride and how well he ran. But I don't think it was it was unexpected. Hugo had been telling us in the lead-up that he was uh, really working well. So we were, we were optimistic, let's say. But he ran a great race, absolutely brilliant race. He's, he's tough as nails, this horse. And uh, he's obviously got a fair amount of ability as well. And the fact that you've you've had to supplement him, the fact that he wasn't in the July Cup already, is that a measure of the fact that he's surprised you a bit by how much he's come on this year? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, if we had thought he was a Group 1 uh, horse, then he would have, you know, two months ago, then he would have been in the race already. Um, but the the improvement um, over the last couple of, of races has, has astounded us, really. And, um yeah, he's uh, he's obviously developed into a into a, a group one type of horse, so we have to give him his chance. I mean, you mentioned the supplementary fee; that's how much the horse cost himself. So, <laughs> um, so no, when you've got a horse this good, then you've got to give him every opportunity to uh, to, to fulfil his potential. Um, obviously, it's a big transitional year for for you and everybody at Manor House with uh, Tom Daskam's reign coming to an end and, and Hugo Palmer stepping in. How would you how would you uh, uh, assess how it's going so far? Oh, brilliant. I mean, we've absolutely been loving it. I mean, the, the thing is, there's that much to, to be done, of course, when you get extra horses, you've got extra stables, you get extra ha- staff, you've got to find accommodation. Um, and then there's just the, the general day-to-day uh, updating of everything from website to, to everything, really. So um, it feels like you're you're pushing against the tide because you've, you're always there's always something going on and you always need to do something else. But when you actually look back to, to what we've done so far it's been amazing around the place and then when you look onto the track as well then that's just been amazing absolutely amazing i mean we look at horses like flaming rib uh we look at ever given brad the brief um Majinsky, lots of horses that that we thought were very good horses and, and hugo's taken them to another level now which is of course why why we're talking about supplementing a horse called flaming rib we simply didn't um know that he was a he was a group one horse so um no it's uh it's been very exciting really exciting on the track and and of course off the track it's uh it's been equally as exciting but of course the general public don't see that but yeah. we're working behind the scenes to obviously make a, a really 
good business and a, a good place to train horses and and uh, yeah it's been going great i've really enjoyed it and, and i suppose there's that thing isn't there you know you, you tip along and you could you could tip along at a certain manageable level but hugo's come in with another load of horses on top and you suddenly you've got to invest more to to, to make the place i guess viable for for a string of that size exactly and it's exactly what i need really um we all need stretching we all need pushing and uh, i'd like to think you know we bounce off each other from from that point of view hugo's got huge plans um to take the to the yard to another level and and so have i and we we should almost stretch each other so um yeah it's it's been great from that point of view i mean the, the yard has never looked so good it's never felt so good there's a buzz about it the place is looking pristine and the horses are running out their skin as well so we're you know everything's going great so far we've uh, we've got lots to do the house is being renovated and it'd be great when all of hugo's family come up and it'll just feel like it's uh it's you know what's meant to be you know that's that, that's where we want to get to but at the minute um hugo's wife vanessa is is uh due to give birth next week so it's all still a little bit um you know not up in the air but it's not as we we expect for the for the future but we're ticking so many boxes as we go along and of course uh, that'll be the next stage but no on the track we couldn't con- uh, we couldn't complain at all and in terms of in terms of this Saturday, I know he's surpassed your expectations already. But he Hugo reported he did a very good piece of work earlier in the week. What between you all are you are you expecting, hoping for? Well, it would be nice from a from a um, business side. I mean, you invest thirty thirty five thirty six grand or whatever the supplement fee was, then you're thinking, well, fourth is uh, is you get your money back basically. So. It would be nice to think that we can uh, we can finish fourth, or better would be a bonus. But regardless, listen, the, the horses has earned his crack at it, and he owes us nothing. I mean, he only cost thirty five grand himself, and he's he's taken us everywhere, and and is the most honest horse you can you could wish to meet. I mean, he's won multiple times. Uh, he's tough. He's got a great attitude, and uh, so he deserves every every bit of this. We you know we'd be foolish to to not. You know, send him into this type of company. So, you know, fourth or better, obviously from a financial point of view. But that's not the motivation. We want to give the horse the best opportunity, and we want to race in all the best races. That's the that's the plan for the future, and uh, thankfully, it's happening already. All right. Well, a big part of July week is the Tattersall's July sale, and as we welcome Ollie Falston, Tattersall's auctioneer, to the show, uh, Ollie, it's probably slightly bizarre, but I think appropriate that we actually cast our eye first of all six months down the track because this week, in conjunction with with uh, you know, launching the July sale, you've you've announced the launch of a of a brand new session to take place uh, in December. Tell us a little bit about it. Hi, Nick. Yeah, we have. Um, so we've started, um, I mean, it's been, it's well known that we have the Tuesday session of the December mayor's sale at Tattersall's is, is a highlight of the year. Um, and it's usually full of top class race mares, brood mares, well-bred fillies. And um, what we've done is, I mean, we've further, we're going to further showcase what we already have on offer and just tighten up what is already a, a fairly tight session into sort of rough roughly around about 75 um, top-class horses, and we have rebranded the session, so the Scepter uh, session. Um, Scepter being um, was a very good race filly, probably one of the best that's ever ever run, to be honest with you. She was, um, she was sold in 1900 for a record 10,000 guineas back then, and she won um, four classics outright, 
she was third in the derby before winning the Oaks two days later. So um, she was quite an exception. She was actually owned at one stage by um, by Somerville Tassel as well. And, and th- there just can be some wonderful drama because you just never know with a broodmare. It could go completely nuclear. You get enormous numbers. The six million for Marsha, I think, will will live long in people's memories. We only had Luke Morris on the podcast yesterday. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And, and funny enough, that year, 2017, we had a run of about 75 horses, I think 10, 10 made a million plus. So, I mean, it, it, highlight, it highlights that there, there is room for a session like the Scepter session to come in. And it was obviously topped off by Marsha, which, which again, you know, surprised, surprised many people. And then we had quite reflection in that year as well. And it was just it was a real gangbuster year. And Ollie, in fact, yesterday's pod showcased all sorts of good things about Tats because Razel, who was a, a horse in training by at a later sale in the year, was, was bought with you for, for 10 grand, uh, the winner of the Coral Charge. You've got a, an important sale this week, the July sale, the horses in training sale principally. Uh, you can get bargains for sure. You can also see a lot of money changing hands. What are you expecting this time round? Um, well, f- first and foremost, I think it's going to be a very international sale this year. We've had a, we've had a, you know, we've had great success down in Australia with Zach, who um, who we sold here, and he's he's gone on to be a top class horse down in Australia. So we have got a load of Australians coming over, which is great. Um, and then we've got plenty from the Gulf region coming. And I mean, we we've also got the rarity that we've got two recent Royal Ascot winners selling in Inver Park and Latin Lover. So you know that that in itself is quite exciting. Very exciting, o- Ollie. Looking forward to all of it. Thanks so much for your time today. Lovely. Thanks, Nick. Well, it is Tuesday, which means we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's. And this edition brought to you by Weatherby's Bloodstock Pro, bespoke client bloodstock communications and management platform for trainers, stud farms and bloodstock operations. And you know we like to cast our net far and wide, but we make relatively regular visits to South Africa where they have just run one of the most prestigious races of the year, the Durban July. And who better to talk to than a man who is steeped in South African racing and breeding, and international breeding for that matter, Craig Kiesvetter, who some of you will also know as an international cricketer of great renown. Uh, But Craig, breeding horses is is your number one passion, always has been. How did South Africa react to the running of the Durban July? The pictures look fantastic. How's it, Nick? Yeah, um, it was it was a terrific day, and actually the build-up, you know, for the two weeks prior was was exceptional. Um, this was the first running of of the Hollywood Bets July, and what is pretty much the most recognisable race in the country. They they sort of took it to a, a completely new level um, with with sort of the interest around the day, not just being you know solely on the horse. Uh, on, uh, or the jockey or the owner or the trainer but they expanded it to be quite international really with fashion and food and um, South Africa as a country and Durban as a city so it was really exciting to see Hollywood Bets take it to another level. Last time we spoke one of your stallions was just starting to make a little bit of an impact in, in South Africa, Canford Cliffs, you know, a horse that we, we were all very fond of here with his brilliant exploits at Royal Ascot and elsewhere. I'm gathering since then things have have kicked up another gear. Just explain the impact he's having now. Yeah, he's he's sort of hit the ground running, and it it sounds extraordinary that in South Africa that he's he's a, you know a freshman sire, where we all know him obviously from being in the UK and um, 
and this internationally renowned sort of racehorse. But he's he's hit the ground superbly. He's he's picked up um, multiple juvenile winners, and he's exceeded in terms of a freshman sire. Um, he's already doing better than than past um, champion stallions of the country. So for us on the farm, it's very exciting. Um, obviously, to have a racehorse of his um, ability come come to the country, but also to to see him as a stallion really sort of taking off and exceeding a lot of expectations. So um, he's been a, a great addition. And the really sort of encouraging thing for us is that his sort of juvenile winners have, have gone over a wide range of trips and they're developing and they're running on. So for us as breeders and as a stallion owner, it's um, it's very exciting. We know a little bit about your other stallions as well, but I gather you've added a, a new boy to the roster uh, to come to come pretty soon. That's right. You know, we've got we've got five, uh, four stallions at the moment, um, and we've recently retired a colt of ours, a Snitzel colt called uh, Real Gone Kid, who um, is impeccably bred. Obviously, Snitzel needs you know no real discussion. Obviously, being champion stallion four times um, in Australia, a bloodline that is exceptional. Um, but the colt is out of a, a champion three-year-old filly in South Africa called In the Fast Lane, who, who won multiple um, grade one races and was the champion of the year, um, the Equius Awards. So he unfortunately was, you know, had his ups and downs in training, but with a bloodline like that um, and a pedigree, we had a confirmation really, you know, we, we deliberated, the team sat and deliberated about standing him and we felt that it's really important for for us and for other breeders in the country to continue to try and expand the bloodline by bringing in international blood. So to have a son of Schnitzel in the country is, is oh, it's, it's amazing for us. The um, interest that has been shown from the breeders has been very, very high. Um, and yeah, he's, he's on his way down to the farm and, and will start his covering duties um, this season. And just for those who, who weren't with us the first time we spoke, I mean, the farm is uh, Ridgemont Highlands, and, and you, you bought that off the, off the Beck family. I, I mean, I can't think of too many people who would be a, a more a key figure in South African bloodstock than, than Graham Beck. No, exactly. No, I mean, Graham Beck is, is an absolute sort of stalwart and champion of, of the industry, and what he, what he did for the industry in terms of international bloodlines, but also improvements and um, and benefits for the industry as a whole, um, was really exceptional. You know, his his family obviously owned Gainsway Farm in Kentucky, and I know Anthony is, is obviously heavily involved there in uh, in Lexington um, with Gainsway. But for us, it it was you know something that sort of grew and expanded relatively quickly. Um, I know my, my old man had a lot of conversations with Anthony um, and those sort of discussions and friendship grew and, you know, the, the sort of deal brokered and, and we were able to take over um, a farm that is steeped in tradition of, of champions, especially stallion power. So uh, we we spent a lot of time upgrading the broodmare band. We've, we race a lot of the fillies and, and bring them back and we've, we've found that we've really got the broodmare band to the standard we want and now we're on our next sort of project in terms of upgrading the stallions uh, um, and especially bringing as much as we can international bloodline in. So we have a bit of a dual sort of operation running. We, we have a, a farm in, in Tipperary and Ireland and we breed mares 
Southern Hemisphere to stallions in the UK, and we bring the progeny back, fillies and colts. So there's that, yeah. Yeah, we find that, you know, unless we continue to expand and continue to improve the the bloodlines, the the industry as a whole and the bloodline pool will shrink, and, and that's obviously something we don't want. You've got that lovely cross-pollination, and you've had some great success with the European uh, horses as well. Uh, Urban Fox, who won the Pretty Polly for you, and Candleford for William Haggis as well, absolutely bolted up at, at Royal Ascot. He was speaking very warmly about that horse's prospects on the on the podcast just last week. What are you hoping for uh, from him? Well, I think what I hope for and what's realistic is, is <laughs> really off William's radar, but it was a bit of a bonkers Friday. We, we, we were at Ascot the whole week, um, and the family were there from Tuesday to Thursday. And then my brother and I, we stayed on the Friday and we had a lot of the friends come race with us. Um, and to be honest, it's sort of, we only found out on Wednesday, obviously, when declarations are out. And with the week being so busy with having friends and family and clients around, it, it, we sort of kind of forgot. And then come Friday, the excitement of, of having a runner and um, never mind a winner, but I suppose, you know, William says to have a runner at Royal Ascot is, is amazing but to have a winner is, is pretty exceptional. So for us, it was it was pretty surreal to to be there um, and have the runner, have him win, but I suppose also have him win so well was 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 quite surreal. So he's a lovely, lovely horse. Um, he's beautifully bred, and we are obviously delighted. You know, uh, William is, is hoping to target him for the e-ball, I think, which is on, I think it's the 20th of August. Yeah. Um, and you know we'll, we'll we'll take it from there. But um, but I'm happy, obviously, to follow in, in in anything that William Haggis does. He's having a tremendous season um, in the UK there, and it's fantastic to see him and Maureen and their whole team doing so well. And as as far as you're concerned, Craig, obviously it's a little while now since you you retired from from international cricket. How do you how do you find the the whole day to day life of of being a being a horse breeder and being involved in in the business and and to what extent has it has it sort of given you a, a new lease of life after your your international playing career? Yeah, it's quite interesting actually because when I when I first retired, the the sort of adrenaline of playing cricket, I was sort of searching for that, um, and I was able to find that in in. The, the sort of the thoroughbred industry, but more so towards the racing side. I think with the breeding, it obviously things obviously take a, a lot longer from you know putting a mare in foal and foaling down and weanling, yearling and sales and races. But, but having a horse and horses and training, it certainly gives you that sense of rush and adrenaline, adrenaline and, and excitement. Um, albeit, I mean, I suppose cricket was a day or three or five days, but. Um, I was asked actually, what was better? Was it was was it better winning the World Cup in Barbados, or was it be- better winning the uh, Candleford winning at Royal Ascot? And <laughs> it was quite weird because I think the elation that I, we felt for the one minute fifty whatever he ran for um, far exceeded the the sort of the two week build up and, and prep of of winning a World Cup. So. Um, and obviously at Royal Ascot, there's champagne that's nonstop. So it was it's it's great fun. It's I mean, as we all know in this industry, there are plenty of of um, of down and, and tough periods and times. So when you have a, 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 um, an achievement or success, or you know people that have an achievement or success, it's always great to to enjoy it with them because um, they can be far and few between. And I I can't let you go without without mentioning 
the man who was alongside you when you won the 2020 World Cup in Barbados, Owen Morgan, who, um, after an amazing and very long international career, an impactful one as well, uh, announced his re- retirement last week. I, I sort of thought he would go on forever and ever and ever. What sort of impact did he leave on you as a, as a sportsman? Well, first, firstly, I think he's, he's probably one of the, the most genuine sort of humans that I've, I've ever come across. Um, you know, that he was very upfront and very straight and very honest, but also very caring. And playing alongside him, he, he probably played 10 or 15 games before I came into the squad. And he was very embracing towards me. And we struck up a nice friendship. Um, and he's... What he well look what he did for the the white ball team in the T20s and the one days he was pretty much the pioneer of where the one day side is now. He was very much the front runner in pushing the team to be there and to play that sort of style. Um, so now that he's retired, at least I can try and get him into the horse racing industry. You know, I think that might serve everyone for the better. <laughs> You're not going to have to work too hard. He's a big fan, isn't he? He's a huge fan. I think. Um, We've got a, him seeing he's an Irish boy. We've got quite a few jumpers with Willie Mullins there as well. So I might try rope him into a piece of one of them. Craig, as ever, thanks so much for talking to me. Nick, thank you very much. All right, thanks to all my guests today. Uh, David Yates is still with me, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, and he has a tip for you for this afternoon. Yes, we're going to Wolverhampton, Nick, and the one thirty race wrought iron. Jamie Osborne and Nicola Curry combine here, a horse who had a red letter day over course and distance last time. That was 15 days ago, is three pounds higher in the weights here, but I hope can follow up in what looks a pretty bang average, 0 to 60. 130 race at Wolverhampton selection is number eight, wrought iron. Dave, thank you so much. As I say, thanks to all my guests. Um, you'll appreciate why this podcast is a little later than normal today. That was Tuesday, July the 5th. We will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.